Well, something interesting happened in uh, about 1536. Now, what's interesting about what I'm going to describe that happened in 1536 that year is that what had happened was really nothing that had happened at all. But around 1536, somebody discovered something about the world that would revolutionize the way we saw the world. It would revolutionize the way we contemplated our place in the universe. It was all, here's the challenge, it was already true, but about 1536, Nicholas Copernicus began to contemplate that perhaps the earth was not the center of the universe. He began to contemplate that rather than the earth being at the center and everything in the heavens revolving around the earth, he began to contemplate that perhaps the sun was at the center of the universe. This is a picture of our buddy right here, not a very handsome fellow, so the Lord blessed him with brains, um, which is kind of cool. That's true for a lot of the men in the room today, he blessed them. Um, and he was born in, in the 1400s, dies uh, in the late 1500s, and he just, he was a smart guy. And he watched what was going on in the universe around him as he looked up to the heavens, and he couldn't mathematically make it all work with the current structures that were the perceived notions of his day. The, the way people thought about it, he couldn't make it work. So he began to change things around and contemplate them differently. And as a result, he wrote a book. Now, his ideas came up in 1536 or so, but it wasn't until about 1540-something that he actually took time to write things down, almost a full 10 years later. And the book gets published. And it, 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 By the way, it's called on the, on the Revolutions of the Heavenly Spheres. That's the name of, of his book, where he writes down the idea that perhaps the earth isn't the center, but the sun is the center of the universe. And we don't even think anything about that today. And what was interesting about that as we jump into this message today is, is that what he really did was he didn't make the sun the center of the universe. He just simply acknowledged that that was true. And when he acknowledged that that was true, it changed everything. This is right at the front end of, of a cataclysmic change in human development kind of cultural development. We call it the Renaissance. It's right at the front end of all that, and his work and a handful of other people's literally changed the course of human history. And all he did, not to minimize it, but just state it factually, is he just acknowledged something that had always been true. It just wasn't true in a sense to the people who didn't know it. The sun had always been at the center of at least our galaxy. Always had been, ever since God put it there. It just wasn't known. Until Copernicus said, I think it might go this way. But I want to just, before we jump into our text today, I want to explore just a little bit of that dynamic because I think it relates to the text we're going to look at, and I think it relates to fathers today. Even when he began to ponder these ideas that would change the world, he sat on it. Eight years or so, ten years before it really goes public, he sits on it. And it was when a group of friends began to prod on him and say, look, you have an interesting idea. He's like, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know about that. And they, a couple guys said, no, really, you, you need to get this out. People need to hear this. I think you're on to something. He's like, I'm not sure if I really want to do that. He, he knew that it might create some conflict in his family, in the church that he attended. And so he was very reticent to go public with his ideas. 
It took him eight years to find his voice. And he finally publishes the thing. And for a few months, everything was fine. And then there was a backlash, a kind of an ignorance-based backlash against him. And his fears that if he did the right thing, acknowledged his thoughts, put his voice out there, that it would kick back on him in a negative way, they were confirmed. He was right about that. And then he dies, kind of in the middle of, 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 a, of conflict. And I don't know what he thought about those things. We don't have journals from the guy that tell us his deep thoughts along the way. But he, he must have thought on, to some degree, man, I, I wish I wouldn't have done that. I mean, it was true. What I said wasn't wrong, but it almost wasn't worth it. And I've been on, to some degree, he would have said, I'm, I'm supposing this, it was true, it doesn't matter what anybody else says, whether I said it or not, it was already accurate, and I'm kind of glad I put it out there no matter what the fallout was. What I want to talk with you today is about two big truths that have a similar type of reality wrapped around them that Copernicus had to deal with. The two truths I want to talk with you about today are true. They're true. To be blunt, and I don't mean to be rude, but to be blunt, whether you agree with them or not, they're true. But they need to be acknowledged. In order to have an impact, a lasting impact, the truths we're going to talk about have to be acknowledged and explored, kind of brought from the truth that's out there to the truth that is beginning to impact in here. And while there are both men and women, dads and non-dads, in the room, I, I want to kind of specifically cater my, my comments towards men, specifically fathers, and say, guys, there's some truths out there that maybe you know, maybe you don't know, but if you'll acknowledge them, embrace them, bring them up close and personal, they can have, in like fashion that Copernicus's ideas had a revolutionary impact on the culture around him, they can have a revolutionary impact on your life. I'm, I'm not overstating for the sake of drama or impact. These couple of truths can have a dramatic impact on your life. They can literally change the course of your life. And we're going to return to a passage we've been looking at for the last three weeks in this message series called Closer. Where we've been saying, what if we took the three months of summer and we didn't just take a full break on all things important and we actually leaned in a bit spiritually? What if while we're resting, recuperating, connecting with family in different ways, thinking about our life in this season differently maybe than we do through the winter holidays, what if we also decided that these three months of summer were going to be a time of spiritual growth for us? That no matter where we're starting on the spiritual spectrum, not in a relationship with God at all, maybe you're here today thinking about that, or you've been in a relationship with Jesus for 50 years, what if this summer was a summer of growth for you? So we've been looking primarily at a passage in the Bible, the book of Colossians chapter 1. If you have a, your Bible with you, you're welcome to go there on your phone in your leather-bound version, whatever. If you didn't bring one, when we get to that, it'll be up on the screen. Let me set up our passage for you today. Paul, the apostle, is writing to this church at Colossae, and he's writing to them about the nature of walking with Jesus. What does it mean to walk with Jesus? What impact does that make in a person's life? And in the first chapter, he lays out a couple of powerful themes. 
We've talked about the fact that he, he embraces the idea that there's some things we can do to grow closer to God. And if I were to ask you to give me a list of what those are, you probably, whether you've been around church or not much, could populate a list that would say something like, you could read your Bible, and you'd be right, or you could pray, you could go to church. And so we made a list week one when we started talking through Colossians chapter one, and we said, here's some things we could all do, no surprise, you get an A today for doing one of them, you're in church, that's awesome. But the concept, how you think about them, really changes the impact these things have in your life. Are they rules that you follow, and so you check them off, all right, went to church today, yay, or are they tools that you embrace willingly in order to benefit from these gifts like church and scripture and prayer and godly friendships? Are they tools that you embrace in order to willingly grow close to God? Rules or tools? We talked about that. We, we talked about the idea that in a relationship with God, there are movements, there are ideas that are so big, so profound, we can't just skip over them. We have to kind of ponder them, slow down like speed bumps, if you will, and think deeply about them. And today, I want to challenge you with a few truths that are already true, but I want to get you to embrace them in a new way today. So Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, near the end of this chapter we've been looking at for two previous weeks, here's what our Bibles say. The Son, S-O-N, that's Jesus, by the way, is the image of the invisible God. The Son is the firstborn over all creation. Now Paul here, in this letter to this church at Colossae, a city where there were Christians gathered, he starts talking about Jesus, and when he does, he begins to employ poetic language. It's like he can't find just linear language to describe Jesus, he starts pulling in metaphors to describe how grand and awesome and powerful and wonderful Jesus is. So he's the son of God, but he's the image of an invisible God. Now that word image is interesting. Because it harkens back all the way in your Bible to the first couple of pages where God made human beings and he made them in his image. This is what makes little kids, when they read that passage or they hear about that passage, maybe over here in our preschool area, they hear that passage and they think that God looks like them. That's not necessarily a wrong idea. It's just very incomplete. When the Bible says that we're made in the image of God, it's not talking about a physical image. So Jesus isn't the physical image of God. It's something very, very tangibly different. God doesn't have a body God took a body in the form of Jesus. So in that sense, you see Jesus, you see God. So he becomes the image, the visible of the invisible. But there's another layer of meaning for the word image that is pretty powerful. When you think about the fact that we, you and I are created in God's image, men. You are. And that's a very high and lofty thing. But it's also a powerful thing because that word image in the ancient Near East, in Genesis and all the way through our New Testament had a specific meaning attached to it. A king would set up various viceroys all around his kingdom. And he would give them full authority to represent his ideas, his policy, his laws. The viceroys were given full authority to operate in the place of the king. And the language that was used to describe this authority that the viceroy had 
was that he operated as the image of the king. So that when you saw the viceroy, you literally were, in effect, seeing the king. So when the Bible says that you and I, men and women, are made in the image of God, it's saying that we have in us the authority, the power, the prestige of the one who made us. It's not a physical thing, but it represents our value, our worth, and even our impact that we can make. And so when Paul employs the language from the Old Testament in this New Testament passage, what he's saying is, whenever you saw Jesus, you saw God, not because he's a physical representation, although that's true, more than that, because God is invisible, when you see Jesus, you're getting the full authority, the full impact, the full power of God present in a person. And so that as you move closer to Jesus, even if the king is a far way away, as you move closer to the viceroy, as you get closer, you're actually moving closer to God. So the whole point of our next few words, what Paul's really going to try and encourage people to do, is to grow closer to God, this general sense, by engaging his visible image here on earth, his son Jesus. Because he's the firstborn over all creation. This idea, image in, indicates uh, an icon, if you will, or a manifestation to make it real or evident. But the idea of firstborn indicates the supremacy of rank. He's the firstborn. He is the pinnacle of all creation. Before everything else, the first in line, this is Jesus. And then in verse 16, Paul continues and he says, For in him, Jesus, all things were created... Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. He's wafting lofty about the nature of Jesus. So hang with me for the philosophical point for just a second. Paul thinks it's important that we stretch our minds, we stretch our concept of who Jesus is. And there's a reason for that, and you're going to discover it in a moment, if you're willing to do the mental work to walk through his language for a second or two. So, in him we might have the supremacy, for God was pleased to have him in all his fullness dwell in him, Jesus. God wanted Jesus to be his full representation, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, they use language slightly different than we do today. We're kind of direct with our communications, and we use a few words Back in the day, if you were smart and intelligent and had something profound to talk about, you just talked and talked and talked about that. And guys, I, if you're like me at all, I get tired of words sometimes. I do. Like, I'll, I'll come home. My wife's wonderful. She'll say, how'd your day go? I'll say, fine. And she'll look at me like, you know, that's not what I mean. She means like details, baby. Give me details. And she wants me to start plowing through the day and I give it an effort or two. And then she'll ask a question and I'm like, here we go. I, I get tired of words. It's Father's Day. Today, I'm not saying a word. I'm doing all my talking right now. It's my day. But back in the day, you would use a lot of words to describe concepts that couldn't be embraced by one or two sentences. That's what Paul's doing here. 
that Jesus is an image, he's an icon, a manifestation. He's making God real to us. When you see him, you have the full authority of God. He's the firstborn. There's a supremacy of rank. He's before all else. He's the first in line. He's the fullness of God. That is, when you see Jesus, he's complete. He's not lacking in anything. It's the total sum, the totality of every attribute that is God. And what Paul is saying here, it's similar to what Copernicus said when he said the earth is not the center of the universe, but everything revolves around the sun. It's a true statement, but not everybody has embraced it as true. And until you embrace it as true, it's difficult to experience, to explore, to think about the, imp the impact of that truth. Yeah, on that point, that's largely why churches exist. Uh, we could say it, it's a bit simplistic, but... To some degree, churches exist to tell the truth that is already true to people who don't know that it's already true. Jesus is pretty awesome. He's still the answer to the world's problems. He's still the one in charge. He came to earth, lived his life among human beings, sinlessly gave his life on a cross, resurrected from the dead, goes back to God the Father where he sits on a throne in charge of the universe. And whether we embrace it or not, I don't mean to be offensive. I don't mean to step on your sensibilities or your intellect. But according to the authority of Scripture, it doesn't matter whether you acknowledge that or not, it's true. What we get an opportunity to do today is to think about that truth and explore what does that truth mean for me. If Jesus is really the Lord, we use that word, it sounds spiritual, we don't know its impact, but the word Lord was common everyday language back then. If Jesus really is the one in charge, if he's the king, if that's really true, what does it mean? What's the impact of that? If the sun is really the center of the universe, even though I've been thinking it's the earth, if the sun really, what is the impact of that truth? How will it change things? Those are great questions. Now, the first truth I want us to explore that maybe to some degree you know it's true, maybe you've been fighting it, maybe you don't believe it at all. Okay, good. Do, do all of that, but the thing we're going to explore is the impact of it. What is the impact of whether or not Jesus really is the Lord of the universe? And why should we believe it at all? Now, what, what I don't have for you in the next few minutes is some logical argument to take away all your questions. What I want to do is I want to take you through a set of passages where people who believed Jesus was Lord rallied around as they tried to explore what does that really mean. All right? So some people come to this discussion and they say, let me prove it to you. I, I don't know that I can do that. All right? The Bible says that there's a certain amount of logic we can engage, but there's also a certain amount of faith. What I want to do is I want to talk to those of you who kind of already believe that, and I want us to drill down on its impact in your life for a moment. And so over the years, followers of Jesus in the Bible and after it was written have explored what does it really mean? What's the impact of Jesus being the Lord. Like, how far does that really go? 
And so let me just talk about some of the ways Jesus claimed to be God. They're not proofs. They really are teasing out the impact. So here's the first thing I want us to talk about. When you look at the life of Jesus, Jesus claimed to be equal with God. So when Paul starts talking about this, he's not making something up. So in John chapter 5, verse 18, here's what happens. Jesus has been involved in a bit of a conflict, and he's been talking about stuff, and when he talks, it upsets people. So the Bible writer, John, records these words. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill Jesus. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. When you read the New Testament, one thing becomes clear. Jesus thinks he's God. He acts as if he's God. Not that he just represents God, but that he is the fullness of God. He is both image, viceroy, but also the very fullness of God. That's why one word for Paul doesn't sum it all up. He's got to tease it out for us. And so Jesus starts acting as if he's God, and this upsets people. It bothers them. Because if he's God, it means you have to take him seriously. You can't ignore him. Now, if he's not God, for whatever various reasons, we ignore him. Maybe we ignore him because he's crazy. There are people in, in institutions all over our country who claim to be God. I've done a little work when I was going through seminaries on a clinical level with a handful of those. It's a very interesting thing when somebody has a God complex, they embrace it fully. Some of us have God complexes in the room, we just don't know it yet. Your, your wife knows it, you just don't know it yet. And, 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 but it's very interesting. And so Jesus, in some regard, is acting insane. Or perhaps he's manipulative, and he has an agenda, and if he can claim the authority of God, then you have to follow him, and he can get what he wants from you. You know, in a sinister kind of plot to manipulate and control. But when you look at him, what you can't deny is that he says he's God. So again, in John chapter 8, here's what the Bible says. Jesus talking, he says, Very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. So Abraham goes back and says, before Abraham, I was already there. And then at this statement, the people listening to him, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. They were angry. The full impact of what Jesus was saying hit them square in the face. They didn't like it. You can't be God. But Jesus claimed to be equal with God. Jesus claimed to be the very voice of God. In Mark 13, 31, here's what the Bible says. Heaven and earth will pass away, Jesus is talking, but my words will never pass away. He's giving his words eternal value. As God speaks, so do I speak. The words I say are going to last. And oh, and by the way, here we are a couple thousand years later, still elevating the words of Jesus. John chapter 6, verse 63 and 64. Jesus, again, is being described here and talking here. The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you, they are full of the spirit and life. Yet there are some of you here who don't believe. Jesus is saying, look, you should take me at face value because my words matter. Jesus claimed to have authority over all things. So he claimed to be equal with God. He claimed to be the voice of God. And he claimed to have authority over all things. You see this in Matthew chapter 8 where he calms the wind and the waves. And here's what's described. The men were amazed when Jesus calms the storm. What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. He has authority over the earth. Followers of Jesus have wrestled with what does it mean to be Jesus, uh, for Jesus to be the Lord, to be in charge. 
Jesus claimed to determine other people's destiny. Matthew chapter 7, here's what the Bible says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, we did, not, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Jesus is declaring that he has authority to determine people's destiny. He's acting as if he really is the Lord. Jesus claimed to forgive sins. Luke chapter 5. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk. He had confronted a man who was lame. And people were watching him heal this guy and didn't like it. So he turns to the crowd. But I want you to know that the Son of Man, describing himself, has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he says to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take up your mat, and go home. In all these ways, Jesus is declaring, and followers of Jesus have explored, what does it mean for Jesus to be Lord? Now, here's the simple truth for us. A lot of setup for this. Just like the sun was always at the center, just like the earth was not the center of our galaxy and the sun did not revolve around the earth, and it took Copernicus, you know, a few years to acknowledge that in human history. A few others had wrestled with it, but he kind of quantifies it. It was always true. On this Father's Day, here's what I want you to know. Jesus really is the Lord. And that impact in your life is huge. And you can partner with that, embrace that, bring that in all the way. And let the truth of that simple statement, Jesus is Lord, fully hit you. Or you can do what some of the folks in and around Copernicus did with the truth that was just as stark. You can create some conflict around that. Like in your own heart, and your own mind. When people land and say, all right, the truth that is there, I embrace it, they begin to explore that out. They begin to tease that out. What does it really mean? Oh my goodness, if that's really true, if it's really true, this is huge. That's why Copernicus kind of sat on it a little bit. Because he knew it was huge. If this is true, it's huge. So, so dads, if Jesus is really the Lord of the universe, here's a simple question. What does that mean for you as a dad? What does that mean? And you're smart people in this room. We live in the suburbs. We have a lot of our life kind of together. And if it's not together completely, we're usually not more than a few steps away of kind of pulling it back together. Most of us, and maybe in this room, if, if you're struggling, we'll be glad to help you. Most of us are not wondering where our next bits of food are coming from. We don't have immediate pressures driving us to ask uh, necessarily survival kinds of questions. And so it'd be very easy to go through life with the truth, Jesus is Lord, kind of out here, but nothing compelling us to bring it down deep in here. So once again, dads, if Jesus is Lord, what does this mean for you? How does it impact you? Let's talk about a couple levels. How, how does it impact you as an individual? How does it impact you, if you're married, as a husband? How does it impact the way you engage your kids? Some people, when the book on the revolution of, uh, of the, uh, the heavenly spheres was published, read the book 
and did nothing as a result of it. Their life just continued. Others, the book was published, they never even picked it up. I'm asking you, in light of the fact that Jesus is Lord and men, to think through deeply, carefully, logically, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Lord of the universe, and how does that impact your life? See, here's, here's my heart for you. I want you to find your voice. I want you to give full expression to the fact that Jesus is Lord in your life, and I want that to impact everything. That's my heart for you. That's not just my heart for you, that's your Heavenly Father's voice, a heart for you. That you, as a follower of Jesus, who is the very Lord of the universe, impacting every single category of reality, if he is the Lord of the universe, it's huge. I want that to be given full expression. I feel to some degree like I'm the friends of Copernicus saying, bro, you know it's true, publish that. Get that out there. Don't hold back. Will there be kickback? Uh-huh. Is it going to cost you to some degree? I think it might. Is it always going to be comfortable? Mm, doubt it. And this was my, where, where I could employ the language of my own father in my life when he would look at me and he would say, so man up. Man up. Now, I always, I always struggle a little bit with Father's Day because on Mother's Day, we preach nice messages to moms and we say, we love you guys. Right? And so Mother's Day is big attendance day in the church because it's just all encouragement. We love you. We, we cry. We think about it. And then on Father's Day, you know what we do? We say to men, you stink. Step up. Come on, man. That's kind of what we do. I, I don't want to do that today, but I do want you to wrestle deeply, men. And I want you to find your voice. I said there were two truths we were going to wrestle with a little bit today, and one I've kind of explored for a while now. Jesus is really the Lord. You don't have to agree with that. I hope you do. And I hope more than just nodding your head, you embrace it and pull it in, and you let the truth of that begin to wash through every category of your life. And if he's Lord, what does that mean for you? What does it mean as a husband? What does it mean as a dad? How does that impact your entertainment choices? How does that impact career choice? How does that impact what you do with your time and your dollars? and your? Re I just think that if it's that big of a deal, we should be thinking. But here's the second thing. And before I say it, I feel like I have to give a little, just a little caveat. I know that our culture is in the middle of massive amounts of debates all over this issue. And that's okay. There's room to talk about the impact of what I'm about to say. We can talk about it, and we should talk about it in grace-filled ways. But men, scripturally speaking, and this is just not debatable. We can throw out the scripture, but we can't debate if what I'm getting ready to say is true or not. Not biblically speaking. Scripturally speaking, men, here's what the Bible says. If you're married, you are the spiritual leader of your home. If you're married, you're the spiritual leader of your home. Now, you can kick against that, your spouse can kick against that, your culture can kick against that, but biblically speaking, man, if you're married, God looks at you and says, you set the spiritual temperature of your home. You're the thermostat. You can wrestle with it, you can fight about it, it doesn't, scripturally speaking, it doesn't minimize the role of women, but particularly your role is you are the spiritual head of your home. It's just a truism. And I want to ask you to wrestle with that today a little bit. I want you to think through what does that mean. 
I don't want to beat you up with it. I want to encourage you with it. I want you to find your spiritual headship voice. I want you to embrace this thing that is already true. Some of you already feel nudged in this direction. You wouldn't be here to some degree if you didn't. Maybe you just came because somebody compelled you to come. We were going to have some cars or some donuts or somebody offered to buy you, or it's Father's Day. I get it. But for most of you, you're here because to some degree, you know that what I'm saying is true. You're feeling called to step up. Good. So what would it mean? What would it look like to give full expression, to fully find your voice as the head of your home? Now, I could but I won't. I could give you a list of things to do, and because we're action-oriented, most men will just jump in the to-doing, but I don't want to do to-doing today. I want you to think about what does it mean for your voice to get full expression in your home, and I know some of you are struggling there because your home doesn't lend itself to you having a voice of spiritual influence. And because it's been a little hard, you've pulled back. Because you feel uncomfortable, you pulled back. Here's what I found out about men. When they don't feel fully comfortable with something, they tend to shirk back into the shadows. If a man gets too embarrassed, he doesn't fight. Typically, he disappears. That's just the truth. That's the way most of us are. You might be the exception. Good. But what if instead of shirking back because of some previous experience, because of some fear of what might happen, because you don't feel fully empowered to lead, what if you just stepped forward into the thing and said, look, the truth is I am the spiritual head of my home, so now I have to ask the question, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for my home? Rather than Ben telling me what to do, rather than my wife motivating me, rather than other people Rather than going to a conference and filling out a list, what if I spent some time this summer and said, hey, Jesus is Lord, that truth should impact me. I'm the spiritual head of my home, that truth should impact me. I'm smart enough to start figuring some of that out on my own. Because you are. You are. But you're busy. You have competing values. And sometimes it's been a little uncomfortable when you've tried. Or like me, you've tried and you failed. Oh, got stories there. But what if we just said, look, all that is what it is, but here's the truth that's still looming large. Biblically speaking, I'm the spiritual head of my home. It probably should have an impact on how I think about myself. I want you to find your spiritual voice. And I want your wife in your ear going, come on, come on, come on, come on. Come on, come on, let's come, come, come. I want you, men. Listen, it's not Ben. It's just my heart for you. This is what God's heart for you is. He wants you to step into that truth. Step into it. Step into it. On Father's Day, I think, men, while you're getting gifts and hopefully people are loving on you and saying thank you and all that, I hope that you'll carve out a little time this week and you'll just ask a simple question. What is the impact of me being the spiritual head of my home? What should I be doing with that truth that is true whether I acknowledge it or not? What would the impact of that? What would be, here's a way to make it manageable, what would be one thing I could do? I I, I called this message, I have decided. And it's, it's a little bit of a play on words. Because Copernicus didn't decide 
<laughs> that the sun was the center of the universe. We don't decide and declare Jesus is the Lord. <laughs> it doesn't matter what you think. And men, you don't decide I'm the spiritual head of my family. God is holding you already accountable for that. What we do is we decide to embrace the truth and then begin to try to walk in that. It's a much more empowering, encouraging, ennobling kind of reality. Here's the truth, and I'm going to walk in it. And I'm going to take my life and begin to explore that out. And some of you are doing so well. A dad said to me this week, I talked with my son this week. We went out and had some fun together. That's always a smart thing to do with your sons. And then we had some conversation over some food. Always a good thing to do. Men like fun and food. It's a good, good way to do the setup. And then he said, I asked him, hey, let's, let's talk about girls a little bit. Son's 11 years old. Do you, do you ever notice that they're kind of pretty and you know, son's eyes go down? And you, you, you know you're hitting pay dirt. And so they begin to create a conversation, and this dad very wisely said, hey, I want to create a zone here where whatever you say to me, I'm not going to be your parent. You're not going to get in trouble. I just want us to talk. And he couldn't have been more of a parent, but he took that barrier away. And so they begin to talk about what does it mean to look at women and to look at them appropriately versus inappropriately and to think about. And they had a moment as a dad and a son where he couldn't have been more of a father doing more of a good job, and he stepped into his role as the spiritual head of his house. Was it awkward? Oh, yeah. Did he have a track record? Yep. Not, not much. A, a little bit of effort, a lot, a lot of missteps, but here we're going. We're getting paid. Did he have a heritage of it? Modeled from his... No, no, this is like new ground. You know what he was doing? He was simply wrestling with the fact, I'm his dad. It's the truth... I, I'm going to embrace that truth. I'm the spiritual head of my family, and I'm going to begin to try to walk that out very simply, man. How are you going to do that? How are you going to walk out the fact that Jesus is the Lord of the universe and probably wants to be Lord of your life? So here's what I encourage you with. I want to encourage you today to make a decision. I'm going to embrace it. I'm going to embrace Jesus. No turning back. I've decided to follow Jesus. And I'm asking you men to embrace the fact you are the spiritual head of your home. I know our culture says no to that, but you are. You are. I'm not saying your knuckles should drag the ground that you're some ape. I'm saying you're the spiritual head of your home. Set the temperature. Set the temperature. Rise up, embrace that truth, and tease that out. You don't need me to tell you how to do it. With that said, Let's grab out our connect cards and take a few steps together as a congregation. Every week I try to give you a chance to do what we've been talking about with Next Step A, to declare that Jesus is my Savior and my Lord. If you've not yet put your faith and trust in Him as the Lord of the universe, if you've not made Him, invited Him to be the Lord of your life, if you haven't decided, I'd ask you to take that pen and check Next Step A. Right there on your connect card. It says, today I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. He already is. You're just bringing that truth down deep, up close and personal. I'd ask you to take that card with your name and email on it, put it in the offering bucket as it goes by, and we'll communicate with you this week. 
We'll communicate with you and we'll let you know about what it means to follow Jesus. You're not joining our church. You're not going to get up, hit up for money. We just want you to know what it is to be in a relationship with the Lord of the universe. And then you put that card in the offering bucket when it comes by. And that's how we do the thing here, all right? In a few minutes, I'm going to pray. You can use my words. You can use your own. And you can look up to God and say, God, I, I really am a sinner. I need a Savior. I put my faith and trust in what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection. I want you, the Lord of the universe, to be the Lord of my life. Next step B says, today I'm choosing to be baptized. If you check that box, somebody will contact you, will answer your questions about it, or will sign you up for one of the dates that fits your schedule to get baptized right here on this stage. And we'll celebrate you dying to Christ, going under, and being raised to new life. Here's next step C. For men and women, I know I've been kind of pointing towards men, but I have an area in my life where I need to invite Jesus to be the Lord. So maybe, maybe he is, but I'm, I'm asking you to step all the way into that. And that I'm not going to move from the hope I have in the gospel. See, here's the thing. You may have Jesus be the Lord of your life in some real sense, but you're holding out areas. What if you take the full impact of the gospel and you bring it across every area of your life? And you step all the way into that. That's what this statement is trying to get at. So if you want to do that, check the box. Let's pray about that. This week I'll send you a reminder. It says, Jesus is the Lord. Let's work that out in your life. All right, you do that work of working that out in your life. Here's the next step, D. Hey, I'm going to engage 4C's Closer Bible Reading Plan. If you check this, we're going to send you a link to you version. You can pull up on your phone, your computer, your iPad, and you can spend 10 minutes a day engaging God's Word, walking in the light of the fact that Jesus is Lord. And men, this is one of the clearest ways that you can begin to embrace what it means for you to be the spiritual head of your home. Here's the next step, E. I've been offering it. I'm going to purchase and read the book, Spirituality for the Rest of Us. That's the one I held up right here um, at the beginning of service. Again, it's not for us. It's just a tool for you. Man, I couldn't be more proud of what I'm seeing happen in this church as men step up to lead themselves well and God begins to grow the influence that they have in this world. I'm proud to walk among you and call you my friends. And I'm proud of the way that you're letting the Lordship of Jesus impact your life. Let's do more. Let's do more. Let's join together. Let's make our decisions. No turning back. Let's pray about these things right now. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that you love us enough to speak the truth into our lives. Truths that are profound, deep, all-encompassing. I want to thank you that you declared Jesus to be the Lord of the universe. But he's not some distant, disconnected God. You invite us to have a relationship, to decide for ourselves to embrace that reality. So now, Lord, I pray for those in this room that are, that are declaring, Jesus, be the Lord of my life. Forgive my sin. Wash them away by your shed blood. I want you to be my leader. Lord, I join with my brothers in this room who are following you, but today you've stirred up a category or two. We're asking you, Jesus, to be Lord in those places as well. I pray for men, Lord, to be the spiritual head of their homes like never before. Help them to find their voice, to speak the agenda, the plan, the heart of God into their families. God, I pray for our church that you would continue to raise us up 
to give life to families here in North Cincinnati. We pray it in the name of Jesus, the strong and holy Son of God. Amen and amen.